This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, is basic income for all Canadians a realistic idea? Evelyn Forger, economist and professor at the University of Manitoba, helps us understand what a guaranteed income would mean for Canadians who need financial support. Also, some of the basics around it, because I think we don't really understand some of the basics of what that income looks like. Greg Fish brings us research that shows just how mean social media is getting and how mean we are getting with social media. We get into how social media is pumping out trolls and why some politicians are at the forefront of toxicity online. Plus, it's Good News Tuesday. We share your texts and good news from all across Canada because that is uh, always good today. This is the Shift Podcast. Good news, everyone. It's about time for some good news. Tell me something good. Your calls, your text messages. Share the story. The more good news we share, the more good news that comes up for us. It's like making good news babies. And who doesn't love making babies, right? We'll make good news once here. Ryan O'Donnell got New Balance shoes. You know you know what he's thinking. Romance is in the air. Hello. Mm-hmm. There's a dad shoes for those who don't understand the joke. Those are the dad shoes, the New Balance shoes that have become trendy again, like the dad bod. Ooh, we got to get you a dad bod. I'm already working on that. Don't worry. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, we got to grow out those eyebrows. Hey, get you some yeah, cargo yeah. shorts. We got to get you one of those t-shirts that's too small, so your dad bod hangs out the bottom of the t-shirt. Yeah, uh, tall white uh, like uh, socks. Uh, Oakleys. Uh, let me think. What else here? Uh, holster for a spatula for the bar, uh, barbecue. That's like next level. And a uh, a digital watch that I bought at the dollar store. Did oh, that's it. That's, that's the that's dad the crit. method? That's the fit. That's it right there. Really? It's it's all about the stance too, though. You got to get the stance right if you're going to do the dad <laughs> yeah. stuff. Got to get the hands on it. Yeah, got to get the yeah. hands on the hips while you watch TV on the show that you don't want to watch. And then you got to <laughs> sit and have a nap with the dog that you didn't want to get. Right. You gotta, you gotta walk by the thermostat and adjust it all the time. Stand with your arms crossed, and and then if you really want to go next level, nap in a mall. Oh, in the massage chair. That's oh, just any chair. That doesn't buddy. sound that bad to me. <laughs> yeah. See. Yay, we're converting another one. It's good news. We share the good news. I got some planting done, although it was uh, it was kind of yesterday, and then it was a frost warning last night, so I had to bring my pineapples inside, which is never good to move the pineapples because they're big and heavy, and they don't have a real big deep root, and so they, they, go, they wobble to and fro. So you have to kind of repack those guys. But I got my sunflowers planted, as we talked about here on the shifts, about getting some sunflowers planted as a salute to Ukraine. Now, I went with dwarf sunflowers just because I'm putting them in pots and six-foot sunflowers, speaking of wobbling to and fro, uh, that would be wobbly. So I thought that would be fun. I got that done. That felt fantastic. Absolutely good news. More good news for me included uh, riding lesson today, watching my daughter ride. She's doing so great. And a uh, little English and some jumping, some rehearsing practice for the uh, the summer of show jumping competitions, which is upon us here in a couple of weekends. What is your good news? Good news. We got our vegetable garden seeded, planted, Linda, Okanagan Lake, BC area. Hi, Linda. Thanks for sharing your good news. Good news, Nighthawk Steve. The big rainstorm last night in Winnipeg. No water ended up in my basement. See? Love the good news. Let's go to Kelly in Calgary because we, uh, we're talking about the gardens. What's up, Kel? 
Hey, Shane. Uh, Shane. <laughs> Shane. Hey, buddy. Uh, all these words, all these people, you know. Yeah, we yeah, just, uh, plant, every you. day program I belong to, we just uh, uh, planted our garden just last week, actually. <laughs> nice. What did you, uh, what'd you guys plant? Oh, lettuce, carrots, you know, kale and all that sort of, all that good stuff. <laughs> Nice. So what kind of day program, like is it a day program where you go to an organization home where you guys keep the garden there or is it more of a community garden? How does that work? Uh, it's community garden based. Nice. I love it. Is yeah. this, this isn't the first year though, is it? Uh, no, it's about our f- fourth or fifth year. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Is it? Tell me what you see when you see those people come together. I'm assuming it's other people that go to your day program. So what, like when you see these people come together, you know, as opposed to being inside doing inside things, Times like this, what do you see is different with some of your your friends and peers that go to that? Well, um, well, everybody likes to help out. That's beautiful, isn't it? The case, eh? Yeah, I love it. Thanks for calling, Kel. Thanks, Kelly's in Calgary. Plans a good garden with the day program. See, the good news is here. Um, Stephanie's in uh, Manitoba. Hey, Stephanie, where are you in Manitoba? Um, I'm fine. I live in an apartment, so it's okay. We got a little power outage a bit, but it wasn't too bad. Oh, good. So, yeah. Anyway, the bad part about my story is, or my part of my story, um, is that uh, my father's gone, but the good part is I found an old joke of his. It's clean. Okay. I have stumped people with it. Okay. Because they don't quite hear it. Anyway, okay. it goes, right. the, ter- the termite walks into a bar and says mm-hmm. to the bar patron, is the bartender here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. You know, because the termite is wood burning, boring animals, so, uh-huh. or insects. So, anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, I guess he does stump people. It stumped me too. I love it. Oh, that's fun. Tell yeah. me, uh, what was your what was your dad's name, Stephanie? He was. It was. He was Arden. Arden. Was Arden. And um, what was your what's your favorite thought or memory or feeling that your dad gave you? Will you share that with us? Um. Well, he was. He was quite a. <laughs> he was quite. Well argumentative sometimes with people with people but he had his good side too i mean I mean he was a great dad he he always stood up for me and and my sisters and one time some girls stood me up to go out for a night and uh, she never showed up and he tore a strip off her like there was no business no base mm. business so it was great that's great see she, that's wonderful she did yeah she deserved it so I love that. Well, thank you for sharing the stories about Arden and the joke book. You stumped me, too. Thanks, Stephanie. You're welcome. (laughs) Bye-bye. Stephanie's in Manitoba. See, stories about Arden. We would never have had any idea about Arden. And how amazing is that? Because I know about you. I I know that with you, when you hear Stephanie tell the story about Arden, her dad, standing up for her, that gets you, right? It gets you because your mom, your dad, your uncle stood up for you. Uh, maybe somebody didn't stand up for you, but then someone finally did. Maybe you stood up for yourself. All right? That's what Good News Tuesday is all about, is when we hear all of these stories, it allows us the space to be like, oh, yeah, you know what? That's cool. I remember when someone stood up for me, too. That's an amazing feeling. So thank you, Stephanie, for sharing that. Um, let's go to Ann, who's in Surrey. Hi, Ann. What's your good news? 
I, oh, what happened? Oh, hi there. We're here. I heard a kind of a dingy sound. <laughs> oh, no. Um, We're good. Okay. My my good news story, I was looking up about the weather because the weather was so hot last summer, and I was trying to afford a, an air conditioner, but I just paid like $2,000 for cataract surgery and everything that went with it, new prescriptions and everything. And I was like, oh, I don't think I can afford an air conditioner. So I started looking at a website about the weather, and I don't know how it can be accurate, but they gave the weather the exact weather for every day all the way until Halloween. Wow. And if they're, if they're anywhere near correct, it's not going to be. It's going to be an ordinary summer. It's not going to be extremely hot like last one. I like that. And that's good for you? Cause that, are you, so are you still well, going to yeah. go after the, um, the air conditioner, or are you going to roll the dice now? Uh, I don't think I can afford it. So I think it's going to be okay. It's not going to be hot like last summer. And I don't like the heat. I'm like a lot of people don't like it that hot. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I love that. Well, thank you very much. And for uh, sharing that, I love it. We'll take a little look. We'll see what we can find. See what we can find for the long range forecast, hot summer, cool summer, normal summer. And I'm with, uh, I'm with Ann. Uh, normal summer is okay by me. I think that's pretty all right. Uh, Ryan O'Donnell's got new cargo shorts and new balance shoes though. He's going to be fine this summer. He's still going to pull his socks up to his knees though. Cause that's what you got to do. Uh, great, great, awesome news. Our son John and his lovely bride Kim just signed the paperwork for their new house on two and a half acres in Manitoba. His mother Kelly and I are excited for them, even if that means they're moving out of Ontario from Glenny. Oh, Glenny, that's so exciting. Isn't that such mixed emotion? You know, kids moving away. <sighs> Good news from Trucker Dan. I sharpened my uh, real push mower. Bad news, I have no excuse for my grass being long. You can come over and do my little patch of grass, dude, which is more like a patch of dandelions because the city of Airdrie doesn't do anything about dandelions. Oh, don't you hate this when in your community? So here's what happens. They have the easements in front of our place, right? So that's technically the town responsibility. Unless it's grass, it's my responsibility. And if it's snow, it's definitely my responsibility. So they put the wood chips out, which is nice, smells nice for a little while. It's like a perfect home for spiders, though. Nobody likes that. But they don't put the fabric down to protect the stuff growing through. And so the weeds and the prickles all come through, and they come through once a year and pull them all out. So good luck keeping that stuff off your lawn. But somehow the guy two doors down, I don't know what he uses, but it's got to be some crazy golf course poison stuff. His lawn is a impeccable. 877-399-9898. What is your good news? Good news Tuesday-ish here. It's The Shift. Clark is in Disbury. Hey, Clark. Hey, guys. How you doing? Wonderful. You Wonderful to hear from you, too. Uh, well, I connected up with a guy I knew, and he's got a new company. Uh, they make uh, racing drones. Oh, no way. Oh, this is the message you sent. I'm curious about this. I saw this. And they're getting tied into some league, and the guys, you know, put their goggles on. There's a camera on the drone. Yeah. And uh, they go racing through a very tight course, high, high speed. Very but fast. Also, like these guys, it's crazy fast in those goggles. That's right. And um, But they're building bigger drones for a lot of different applications. And I think uh, if you check the website, uh, there should yeah, be some pictures up there. Yeah, feel free and, to uh, share share the name of that company. I, I have no problem with it. Yeah, Dra- Dragan, D-R-A-G-A-N. Very cool. Um, now, have you had a chance to put the goggles on and give it a go, Clark? No, no, no. I don't do that crap. Come on, you got to <laughs> no, no. do that, I, man. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a techno 
how can I say researcher? I just tied in with, uh, uh, did some work way back with uh, Pacific National Labs in Idaho, you know, about their yeah. nuclear reactors and the rest. Oh, oh yeah, so just, you can't fly a drone? Come on, man. <laughs> I, took a, I took a crash course on how to land a 737. Yeah. Working with so, the and work, You can and fly a, a drone. I'm telling you. Well, See? Yeah, I can, but, you know. Yeah. I don't do that. Clark. Put the goggles on. I want to see. I want to see this. I got arthritis, man. So it's really oh, hard so to control. <laughs> I hear excuses, Clark. I think you need to put the goggles on and fly the drone. Hey, I appreciate this very much. How did it feel for? Um, how did it feel for you to hear such a great success story from an old friend? Uh, it was good. It was good. And uh, you know, the other adventures he'd been in, you know, had done well. And this was a new one, and uh, it popped up on was it electronic des- uh, electronic news that I get every day and yep. I just looked at this and this is just like, you know, holy crap. I know but the other guy. good news is I tied this lab in the States with a guy in uh, BC who's built a module that you can heat up while you put heat into it and then you flick a switch and when you want heat, you flick the switch and you got heat. Hmm. That's it's, a thermal, it's a thermal chemical storage unit. Mm-hmm. And uh, now the cute thing is, is it can go to 180 degrees C. This new battery in that they're developing, it uses a molten salt solution, and it has to be up to 180 degrees C. Oh, there's a connection. But oh, this no. molten salt thing, they can charge it up and then shut it, off, shut it off. And then when you want electricity out of it, you heat it up to 180 degrees C, and boom, you got power. That's cool. Two different two different units dancing together perfectly. Clark, I love this, man. Thanks so much for the call. Okay, take care, guys. Good news from Clark and Didsbury right there. This is the Shift Podcast. Everything is expensive. Inflation's going up. Uh, in fact, the uh, the banks are talking about another hike in the inflation rate, right? So the reality is, is this going to get more expensive? The squeeze is there. There was a piece that we had on the radio that one of the guests had said, you know, uh, all that money still in circulation from the price of gas when people were working from home. And I, I thought it was incredibly daft to say that that money's still in circulation. You know, two years later, people have repurposed the money, whether it was on potato chips or marijuana, or maybe they bought an investment property. Trust me, everybody has repurposed that money. And to think that that money's still in circulation, I think was in very uh, entitled of somebody to think that that extra money's lying around because the reality is, is most of us are insolvent. And um, with my kids today, I can tell you that every month is a battle to not be insolvent, which just means I'm in negative equity for the month. And if it, especially now, because our investments are going down for the most part, if you're a RSP or mutual fund kind of person. So in the big picture of all of the money, most of us are getting our butts kicked. And this is where we, we bring in Evelyn, the, the butt kicker of all butt kickers on money. Um, now you, uh, livable income. I struggle with this. I'm a business owner, Evelyn. And um and Evelyn, this is this is this is a thing because I draw the distinction between livable income, balance and fairness with greed. And greed is sort of the word that doesn't get that doesn't get batted about, right? Some business owners are very very greedy. 
And some mm-hmm. business owners invest in their people. They make sure they stick around. They make sure they're long-term invested in their business and everything else. The point of that is that we just can't trust on that as a structure to make sure people aren't starving because we need to celebrate the great capitalists and uh, this the greedy people. I would say capitalism uh, is fine. It's greedy people that wreck it. Um, the greedy people, there's a problem there. Regardless, and I always use this example, much like arrows on the grocery store floor, sometimes we need a little bit of help and direction. And this is where I see that this livable income has to be part of the conversation because people are getting left behind. It's just that simple. And we've seen it more so in the last six months than ever before. Welcome to the shift. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what do you see? Livable income. What do we do? What's going on? What do we need to know that we don't know with, uh, with people in, 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 this, um, in this conversation? I mean, you're an economist and professor at University of Manitoba, so you see it every day. Well, I think one of the things that uh, guaranteed livable income does is it gives uh, workers a little bit of uh, a little bit of power in the arrangements you just talked about a minute ago. One thing that a guaranteed livable income does is it allows people to walk away from the jobs that are not good jobs. It allows them to find a way to use their time and a way to build their lives that uh, supports them. Mm-hmm. I love that part. I love the uh, an inspired workforce versus an oppressed workforce because Absolutely. I mean I've done that. I, I in between jobs I went and stacked grocery pallets in a grocery warehouse for minimum wage plus barely. Uh, incredibly difficult work. Amazing people there that were working so hard every day. I could not get out of there fast enough. I mean they were great people, but the job was just uh, so repetitive, and so it really brought to my attention the the amount of repetitive work that's out there. So that part makes sense. Um, I, I mean, how does it work? How is it better for us when there's a basic livable income that everybody should be able to have access to? Well, I think a guaranteed livable income guarantees that there's nobody in, in our society living far below the poverty line. Everybody will have enough money to meet at least the need for modest rent, to put food on the table without recourse to charities, without recourse to food banks. But it's not a generous income. Most people want to work. Most people do work. Um, What it does is it supplements low-waged workers. It allows people to move ahead to make decisions about their lives. Does What comes to mind for me is cost of living with real estate, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, Mm -hmm. what is the point? And I'm going to ask this one very directly um, because I'm excited about your answer. Um, what is the point of livable income when you have a commission-based industry like real estate that intentionally raises prices to make more money and the government's really doing nothing about it? You've got the banking system that uh, is not helping at times, and then you've got higher interest rates, which make it even more out of touch. They say it makes it more in touch and slows it down. Uh, so there's no way that a livable income, though, helps anybody get into a house that they can own. No, absolutely not. And I, I think it's important to remember that what a guaranteed livable income does is it's it, it's helping people meet some very modest needs out there in society. It's not solving all the problems we have in society. It's certainly not um, not um, solving all of the difficulties we face with the housing market. Um, there's still a need for social housing. There's still a need for other kinds of investments. All it does is to allow people to meet those basic needs, to allow them to move from day to day. Mm-hmm. Is charity a problem in today's world? Um, because the, the structure of what is charity is, um, 
you know, it's, it's basically tax haven driven for, on one side. And on the other mm-hmm. side, it's, you know, a real opportunity for people to, to be able to survive. And there, there, there's a business. It's a big business in the middle. And um, it employs a lot of people. And I've always been curious as to whether the way that the charity system is set up actually works against it enables people on one end, but works against development or ever getting out of that hole on the other when it's just a tax benefit for most people. I think it's very difficult for people to piece together support from a lot of different organizations, each of which has its own agenda, each of which has its own goal yeah. out there. Um, a livable income allows people to to operate independently of that. And I think it, it, um, it, it allows us to ask some questions about the way the charitable sector operates. So livable income is not free money for everybody. It's what is it just free, free money for certain people? How does that work? Well, it's income tested. Um, it's income tested. Uh, the basic guarantee is somewhere close to the poverty line. Um, if you go out and you earn money, your benefit will be reduced by less than the amount that you earn. So it gradually peters out. By the time you get to middle and upper incomes, it disappears entirely. So it's really focusing on people, people, people who are struggling. And um, I guess what makes it different from Existing supports, disability supports, for example, or provincial income assistance is that the money is unconditional. You don't have to appear with receipts to demonstrate to somebody what you've spent the money on. You don't have to have worked in the past in order to qualify for it. You don't have to have a series of appointments with different kinds of medical practitioners to demonstrate that you can't work um, to support yourself. So the money is unconditional. It's available to people based solely on your need. Hmm. So this, I think of folks that are on age. Um, you know, I mean, the age system, that system, anybody who's on age will say it's not, I mean, it's helping, but it's not working because it's still just not enough. Um, and yet it's, and yet it's one of the best programs in the country. Right. And, and so, <laughs> so I think that many people, many people would uh, be in big trouble. Many people would a great deal to be in that position. Right. And so, yeah. so, so it is, I mean, and that's uh severely handicapped, uh, program. Mm-hmm. And so, but so would this, um, income, scenario where would that replace the the organizations like H because if H isn't enough uh w- mm-hmm. when when you know people are on H say well it's great but I still can't afford I've my my budget for food this week is $37 um how does this get better than that well I, I think that we have to remember that there are two aspects to disability supports um basic income guaranteed livable income is just money it replaces the monetary portion All of the other supports that people require, um, things like um, special assistance to access the job market, um, special supports that people with disabilities require are still in place. But yeah, it replaces the um, financial transfer that they receive from H. And it it improves the um, it improves their access to basic cash. What I hear there is I hear it allows the organiz like the charities, if you will, or the organizations to be good at one thing, like getting into the Mm -hmm. job market, right? Uh, so right, that, right. that part, or mental health, um, uh, the the mental health right, support. Exactly the the sorts of things that require you to um, you to interact in person to meet those needs, but that they should be voluntary. And I think that there's a difference between simply accessing cash okay. to meet basic needs and accessing the kind of services that um, that you access on a voluntary basis in order to. Um, uh, in order to live a better life. Yeah, and you see, this is where I get so curious, uh, Evelyn, is that um, is I, I don't think we understand in general. That's why I'm asking these questions because I'm realizing that I don't understand some of the pieces of basic livable income. And I think that we in general uh, assume it as welfare. Now, um, yeah. 
that's how we hear it, right? So that's why some of these questions are, are I, I figure, well, let's go back to the basics here. So who pays okay. for it? So if I'm a minimum wage worker, uh, I'm going to say mm-hmm. hospitality worker, minimum wage worker, maybe waiter, waitress kind of thing, bartender. And I'm mm-hmm. making, call it $15 an hour, average across the country, just call it 15 mm-hmm. bucks. And that's below the poverty line, technically, I believe. That's and right. so now that person um, would... Would they they would qualify for assistance, kind of like how EI works, right? When you you get a little bit, but when you work, that number goes down up to a certain point. So you, that's right. You, that's right. So if you if you were living below the poverty line and working, you would receive a partial guaranteed livable right. income. So and then in that particular case, there is the uh, exposure of tips. Lots of people don't claim their tips, so it would be a tax filing based system. So that's potential vulnerability there, but not everybody gets tips. Uh-huh. That's right. Okay. All right. So it's not different from other programs that are currently in place. Right. That's right. Right. So that would be, you know, that would be the what everybody does for chasing down people don't file taxes on their tips, I suppose. Um, okay. So that makes sense for that. Then who pays for this uh, the way that it happens? I guess it would be off of the income tax of higher earners. That's right. I mean, I think I think we have to remember that we're already paying a great deal to um to produce a lot of different programs at all of the various levels of government. So municipalities, provinces, the federal government all have various programs in place that attempt merely to transfer cash to people who need it. I think what a guaranteed livable income does is it takes many of those programs, it folds them into a single program. And one of the advantages, of course, is that if you have a single program, people are more likely to get the benefits to which they're entitled. Because right now there are a whole lot of programs out there that people are qualified for, that they don't access simply because they don't know about them. Every one of these programs has different eligibility requirements, different application yeah. procedures, well, and, you have and to, so on. You have to figure it out. That's that's another thing, right? Like, um, how many people okay. are missing out because they don't know how to get access to it? So here's the one thing that I hear, and I don't know if you know these numbers, but the government, since 2015, the government in Canada has grown by almost 25%, right? It's like 80,000 employees. <laughs> and so what I hear with this is the way that you describe it is with basic livable income, it's possible. I guess one of my caveats would have to be like, look, you better trim down government. If you're going to simplify yeah. this and you're going to get rid of all these extra programs, uh, let's cut out the middleman. And well, the programs the, the programs that exist are incredibly expensive to yeah. run. There's no question about yeah. it. Um, I, I personally don't think we have too many people working for government. I think we probably have too many people doing the wrong kinds of jobs for government. That could be fair. Instead of hiring people to police clients to make sure that they're not cheating on the system, to help them fill out forms that are too difficult to fill out, we could be using some of those same employees Mm -hmm. to offer programs and develop programs that are actually useful. Children in the foster care system, for example, would be able to see their worker on occasion. On occasion. Um, How terrible is that, right? Which which, which they don't right now. Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, there are a lot of shortages across the system at the same time that we have way too many people doing way too much work. So, how do you tell the middleman, though, because it's a systematic problem, clearly, that's where we're getting to, right? How do you tell the middleman that, by the way, you can keep your job, but you got to do a different job, and and the government is very, very good at becoming the middleman and just taking a peel off everything to use it for budgets for other stuff, things One of the things we can recognize is that turnover in these jobs yeah. are, is incredibly high because they're not very good jobs. Right. I mean, by and large, they're very, very difficult jobs to work. I hear that. So I think, I think that the opportunity to um, to develop a good program and to put it in place also creates opportunities. Oh, efficiency to, in the workplace, work without a doubt. Like, I hear that. Absolutely. I've got a friend who, um, who Evelyn, who 
Uh, he runs his own business and he's just, he's cheap, right? He just doesn't pay. And he always complains about how his staff is turning over, turning over, turning over. And it's amazing how that yeah, happens. And I, I'm, like, yeah. I'm like, dude, like the amount of time you spend uh, and money you spend on, on recruiting, if you just put that into one or two of the employees, like you could save yourself an awful lot of time. Like, wow, sales into down and blah, blah. Well, spend time selling. Like, so there is a responsibility exactly. of that curve there that, that gets there. And finally, he added benefits for his employees. And that's made a big difference, too. It's funny when people, they feel like, you know, they can have some health benefits and a little bit of safety net that they start to work a little differently or at least stick around. I mean, so the efficiencies are very clear with this. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So um, we have learned, and maybe this is a gift, maybe it's a burden, I'm not sure, but we've learned through COVID how greedy right. the people are, that an awful lot of people took COVID incentives and decided to mm-hmm. not go to work. They said, well, we've got you know five people in this house. We can all get $2,000. Now we've got $10,000 income in this house. We don't, none of us have to work. We can do whatever we want to do. So we've actually seen the the statistics on the greedy segment of the of the society right so that could be a gift because when you're talking about basic basic livable income you've actually seen where some of the problem people will be mm-hmm. now at the same mm-hmm. time though we have also seen how selfish people can be and so basic mm-hmm. livable income seems to me to be a belief in community and there's a lot of people that don't believe in community at least maybe they're not aware of it i'll give them that grace i think we need to remember that um abuse of covid supports happened in a lot of different areas it happened not only with the sir but also happened with supports to small business oh, big and business payouts to executives right you got it right across the yeah. board and i think i think um much of the so-called abuse happened because these programs were designed on the fly they were designed in a matter of weeks and implemented in a matter of weeks and so the programs were not designed as well as they might have been, and they were certainly designed um, and designed without the kind of safeguards that the baby wouldn't put in place if a program were um, were developed, if a basic income program were developed and rolled out across the board. Um, but I think we also have to remember that one of the reasons the CERB was put in place was to encourage people not to work. It was designed to keep people at home. Mm-hmm. So why are we surprised that people stayed at That's home? Right. It paid many people more than they were earning in the workplace, and it did it quite intentionally because if you pay people more than they were earning, they'll stay home. It's reasonable to expect them to do that. Valid. Very good point. If that's not the purpose, if that's not the purpose of the program you're putting in place, you design it a little bit differently and you ensure that there are incentives for people to continue to work um, and to to find better jobs, to move into better jobs as well. Love it. Uh, Evelyn Forget is an economist professor at University of Manitoba. So let's let's speak to the inspiration part now, Ev. Uh, look at me, we're, we're buds now. I call you Ev. Hope that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, let's speak to the inspiration part. Um, what do you get excited about coming out of the lessons learned in COVID? Coming out of this, people are reevaluating their jobs. They're re- for me the mm-hmm. biggest thing is the commute. I the uh, driving to work when we've done this th- this radio show has not happened in a studio since June of 2020. And I've done it in multiple locations across the country. I have more resources at home than I do in the studio today. So for me, the commute has been a big one. I realize everyone has their own version of that story. So what are you inspired about, number one? And number two, what is a system, country, organization, place that seems to be doing a good job of this, that that gets you excited and hopeful? Ooh. Um I, I think one of the things that's happening going forward is that, that we're rethinking many of the aspects of, of our lives. We're rethinking about the the role that work plays in our lives, and um, we're we're rethinking how we can 
how we can live as human beings while, while also continuing to put food on the table and, and pay the rent every month. So I think that's a very interesting thing. I think one of the things that we will be reevaluating going forward is, is the notion of how employees and employers relate to one another in the workforce. Um, we've heard all the stories about labor shortages that people simply can't hire workers. And you mentioned just a minute ago. What happens if you actually pay workers a reasonable wage and guarantee them a certain number of hours? You know, the, the situation changes dramatically. And so I think all of those things are being rethought. And it's exciting to me to think about um, what kind of a society we're going to build coming out of all of this. I think we recognized um, during COVID something. I mean, we've lived, we've lived with this notion of scarcity for a very long time. There's simply not enough to go around. And I think one of the things we recognized is that um, with a little bit of imagination and with a little bit of thought, we can do a better job than we have done in the past um, in ensuring that uh, people do have access to what it is they need. I can tell you this. When a uh, townhouse that's 30 minutes away from downtown Ottawa, the capital of this country, is for sale mm-hmm. for seven hundred and ninety thousand dollars. That is a very modest townhouse. That's about fifteen twenty years old. That tells you something, and it tells you that it's not working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are hard questions. They're hard questions, right? Um, and so, for all of us, when we look at this, we look at the people that don't have a place to live. Because I, I promise you, there's mm-hmm. a family member. I promise you that there are shift heads listening to this program. That th- that's me. Right. Mm -hmm. And the irony of Mm -hmm. all of it is that if you make a hundred thousand dollars or you're making twenty five thousand dollars at the end of the month, take back to my point at the beginning, is that at the end of the month, most everybody's saying it's not enough money. Now, sure, maybe one person goes out for drinks and dinners and one person is eating Ichiban. But the reality is, is that the way we're living our life is not enough. It's never enough. Mm-hmm. So what about countries mm-hmm. where you've seen um, that, it, that it's working or at least it's started to work? I have some friends that have traveled to Europe to go to university. They've been given the opportunity to go study and, and do that stuff there. Are there any countries that come to mind for you that, that truly um, are at least are inspiring? Maybe it's not there yet, but it's, it's inspiring for, for how this works. I think so. I think that there are a lot of things that, that um, a lot of decisions we have to make about how to live our lives, even in countries that don't work particularly well, some aspects of them work quite well. Um, one of the choices I think that we've made for a very long time in North America is, is to base our economy on sort of a low wage, low price economy. Food prices are cheap, wages are low, and we get into this vicious cycle where where people receive less and less, but they rely on low prices to survive. That's not the only possibility. And if you spend any time in Europe, you can realize that a high-priced, high-wage society can work just fine. And so I think part of it is to just re-examine the way we think about the kind of society we live in. Um, One of the countries I'm most comfortable in, I think, is Finland. And uh, some of the Northern European countries have very interesting, um, very interesting attitudes towards community and very interesting attitudes towards how we support people who require a little bit of extra support. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, I would add this. And you're the economist. So I'm a little out of my lane. Uh, Brewing, milling, textiles, shipbuilding. If you go backwards in time. Right. Those Mm -hmm. were manufacturing uh, steel. Mm -hmm. Rail was a big one. Um, automobiles hadn't started yet. And those were the industries of the day. 
when this country design was designed. Right. And we don't often don't talk about that, right? Like this country was designed at a time where the biggest technology was burning coal to make steam in a train to get across the country one day. Right. And we couldn't even do that at the time. So there are, there's going to be elements here. We actually did this this thing about old laws that, that are really silly. Like it's illegal in Canada to scare the queen. Um, So when you think of it from that perspective, there's an awful lot that probably needs to be reevaluated. And, and I think that's okay to talk about. Absolutely. I think the economy is changing. It's changing dramatically. We're seeing it and we've been seeing it for a number of years in terms of the nature of the jobs that people are getting. It's not that the jobs aren't there, but the kinds of jobs that people access are very different than they used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I think we need a whole different set of social programs in place to accommodate the change in the economy, the change in society and the change in the nature of the workplace. To what you're speaking, if only we could get the first step of the efficiency part changed, can you imagine how, how beautiful that would be? Absolutely. Ha, that's amazing. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. What everyone listening doesn't know is that we've actually tried to do this a couple of times, but then life happened. So I appreciate uh, you being here. Evelyn Forger, Officer of the Order of Canada, economist and professor at University of Manitoba. Thank you so much for the insight. I, such a raw conversation about all perspectives. I've learned a lot here, and I appreciate that. Thanks very much, Shane. This is The Shift Podcast. Let's uh, chat with Greg Fish. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Worldofweirdthings.com is where you can find the blog, the podcast, and all the things that is Greg Fish's writing. How social media algorithms turn us and our politicians into trolls. Fish, how are you? I'm doing fine. Finally off the side of the road. Back in my home office. Last week, Greg Fish was on the side of the highway in the desert. So it's nice to see you made it out alive and the vultures didn't get you. Uh, That's always a positive. Right. It's never good, ever good. Yeah, how was your trip? It was good? Good trip? Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a very, uh, very unusual trip, but it was unusual on purpose. Oh, good. I love it. All right. Unusual in Vegas. Don't ask anymore. That's what I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. So about <laughs> social media, just in case, before we get a little Lovely. too distracted. Hey, man, furry conventions, whatever. You give her. We love it. Um, so here, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm just kidding. Ouch. Hey, man. I I set myself up with that one. I set myself up with that one. Doors wide open. You got to take a shot. I respect that. I respect that so much. This is the thing. When you choose no comment, uh, imaginations go wild. So um, that's what we'll do. Anyway, um, we are on the social media conversation here. Are you insinuating, Greg Fish, that social media companies have a heavy hand in all of our political uh, divisiveness that's happening right now? I was insinuating this in previous segments when we touched this topic, but now I'm back with the empirical proof from the university. University at social media usage and patterns and what people are actually saying in certain contexts. And they have given me empirical backing to my insinuations. Okay, good. Well, for a computer scientist who loves numbers and square things, uh, this is good. 
this makes must make you feel fantastic. So what are we talking about? Help us with a summary of this survey and how we are trolls, just like our politicians, both guilty because of social platforms. So let's go ahead and start with the politicians, because it's always fun to hate on the politicians. And hey, they deserve it a lot of the time. Um, a recent study from the University of Winnipeg looked at the content of tweets of American politicians uh, because they really wanted to, to hyper focus. And they looked through hundreds of thousands of tweets using an AI that understood uh, certain language patterns and topics because we now have these, you know, giant billion parameter um, AIs that can analyze speech a lot better. And what they found out is that since 2009, a, uh, American politicians have gotten a good quarter meaner. They're less civil. They use more sarcasm. They use more snark with each other. And this is not, this particular thing is actually not a, a political spectrum thing. You have politicians both on the left and on the right uh, being more uncivil towards each other because it's kind of creates this feedback loop. So you have someone being uncivil and another politician being uncivil right back. Um, and what the researchers wanted to look at then is, well, why is this happening? Because, you know, if you're a politician, the the general idea is that you're the voice of reason. You want to show leadership. You want to be cool, calm, collected. You're not going to, you don't want to act like you're in, you're in high school and you're trying to like get the best comeback possible at a table of mean girls. Uh, but the reality is that the algorithm rewards you with attention if you do that. So they've pretty much figured out over the past five, six years that the less civil and more snarky they are, the more attention they get, the more replies they get, the more retweets they get, the more likes they get, the more they get quoted, the more their tweets get coverage in the media. It's really all about a game of attention. Um, and the other important thing is that since we basically know for a fact at this point that um, social media, specifically Twitter and Facebook, reward outrage the most from a number of other supporting studies. Uh, we can also take a look at another study from the University of Michigan from 2020 that looked at different patterns of behavior and found that people who have who spend the most time on social media, who describe themselves as addicted to social media, do tend to spend their time being trolls. So because, again, that gets them attention. So really, again, it's an attention game. You are effectively in the room with millions of people. How do you rise above everybody else? How do you get your voice heard? Well, you just be meaner to everybody else. And people trying to call you out or to out-mean you or to, to give some sort of a comeback, um, they, they essentially end up elevating your voice. And then the algorithm learns, hey, these humans really like picking on each other. So let's go ahead and elevate that as the conversation. Let's serve up more and more of that in the timeline. And that's really why you may have noticed recently that... When you log on to Twitter, it seems like more of a cesspool than usual. When you log on to Facebook, there's a lot more angry screeds than usual because it, it's at this point, those algorithms are very much trained to shove anger into your face. And it's especially problematic if you're in a position that requires you to have or, or generate attention to yourself and what you do. Okay, so, oh man, this takes me in all kinds of places. It makes total sense, absolutely. 
I mean, you see this more and more often. Is this problem caused by? I mean, obviously, when you say the troll attention-seeking, that comes from insecurity. That's a human problem that we all have that seems to have been exaggerated more and more as we have larger platforms. Is it we're too cheap now, we're doing business poorly because we don't have an advertising budget like we used to? For example, in the old days, if you wanted to uh, have a political platform, market your product, whatever, you had to get the principles, you had to deliver them, you had to shake hands, you had to get a booth at the mall, right? Like you had to do all kinds of things, buy a billboard to market your products. Same thing with politicians, although my politician uh, here in my riding uh, still actually uh, puts out sheets in the mail like every week or so. I see you, Blake Richards, paper killer. Um, but the... Um, the, the reality is, is that it's possible that we're cheap, that we don't spend the money anymore. So we're not doing business properly in order to market ourselves or that we truly are just meaner. So it could be any of those things blended together. I think there, there, there's actually a lot of studies uh, about social media and we can start finally putting them all together. And what they would indicate is that we can be performatively meaner. Because that is what gets us hurt. So a lot of the another interesting thing about trolls is that when you look at the behaviors of trolling, a lot of trolling happens when people come home from work, they've had a bad day, and they're about to make it everybody's problem. Right. And you also have because it gets people attention, you create these very perverse incentives for them to be meaner. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, you know, this is this I I have definitely said things meaner on Twitter than I would have said it face to face in a particular conversation because that's your kind of first instinct. You know that that you know that that gets rewarded. And it's not necessarily because I I wouldn't have said something. There's definitely people who I would insult to their face. Let let me let me put it this way. But I may have not come in as hard. I may have went for something that is a little bit more subtle. I may have not went right for the throat. Uh, but that's not what social media rewards you for. It rewards you for going straight for the throat. And the biggest problem, though, when it comes to politicians is not even the fact that they're, you know, they're out there um, doing what they can to, to generate attention, because that's really politics is just a popularity contest. And the more people know who you are, the better chance you have at being elected. Uh, because if you're even if you're a troll, even if you're kind of an asshole, it's very much like, well, maybe this person is going to be the fighter for me. Maybe they're yeah, they're they're mean. Maybe they're a troll, but at least they're on my side because that, and right. that's kind of how American politics works nowadays. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the problem becomes that the focus is not on solving the problem. The focus is on dunking on the opposition on social media. So that's that's kind of a problem, because at the end of the day, you have to actually like get together with the other lawmakers and you have to actually like debate bills and solve problems and, and, and pass laws. And if we have a lot of politicians going boring, I'm just going to shoot my mouth off on Twitter instead. Uh, that that's kind of a that's really problematic because it, it really what what ends up happening is stuff that we need to have done to actually have like civilization going just doesn't get done or it gets done very poorly. 
And in fact, mm. there have been numerous cases in the United States. Uh, there's there's definitely three or four major ones where you had very extreme politicians be, who kind of came to power thanks to Twitter, thanks to social media, thanks to outrage, outbursts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they governed for a year and a half, two years, and then were essentially ran out of town because while they're screaming at you about, you know, the, the Marxist, reptoid, satanic cannibals, people are going to those city council meetings and goes, hey, um, no one's filled the pothole near my house for like six months. Exactly. And, and also what's and also what's with the bridge de-icing? And are we going to get snow removal? Also, are we getting the new books in the library or what's happening with that? And they have no interest in doing that. They don't know how to do that. That's not why they got themselves elected. Um, and eventually people just get mad and, and get rid of them. So it, it in the end, it doesn't work. This this kind of like governance by attention, governance by tabloid, it, it doesn't work. But it looks like it does on Twitter. And that's where the politicians want to seem to go. Yeah. Well, do people want to be to affect change or do they want to be heard isn't that always the question right like do they actually want to be heard or is it one of the things where they just want to complain because they don't want to you know find part of the solution right like so many people i'll give you a great example out in front of my house there's a post with dog poop bags uh yesterday there's a pile of poop right next to the dog post and uh, I called because the poop bag, uh, there was there was bags there. I called a few weeks ago because the post was empty. And I said, hey, just so you know, the post's empty. wonder if someone would come get that cleaned up. And the lady was like, oh, thanks so much for being nice. Like, that's the standard we've created. So do people just want to complain and that just exaggerates things? I'll add to that a story that I know somebody who is very uh, high profile. And on their Twitter account, they are very flippant, foul language. And the only reason is the, and in conversation, I, I don't share who the person is out of the privacy because I'm not running this conversation by the first was I asked this question. I said, why the foul language though? Since I've been swearing at people on Twitter, I have way more followers. Now this person has their own agenda and the more followers that are there when they need to pull the trigger on what they care about. Now they have a larger audience. So, I mean, everybody's getting sucked in, man. Yeah, absolutely. And and here's the thing. So this is going to be part opinion, but I can pull out facts to support it or I can point to to data to support it. But I I would say that it's kind of a it's kind of like a twofold thing. Um from one standpoint, there's a lot of people who feel very much powerless. They feel like the system doesn't work for them anymore. And so they just want to be heard, at least, you know, get their voice out there, tell everyone that they're dissatisfied to various degree and to various degrees of obscenity. And the other thing is that because that's rewarded, they just want to keep going because they feel like they feel like they're doing something. They feel like finally they're heard. Finally, they can they can get out of this rat race that they found themselves in and they can get some followers and maybe they can do something with them, just like as you explained you know, it, it, it becomes a bit of a, it, it starts off as just venting frustration and then it becomes a bit of a game. And then in the end, there's really not much of an end game because you haven't really changed anything. You haven't really fixed anything. Maybe you hawked something for a little while, but, but most of the time it doesn't really work out unless you have millions and millions of followers. Um, it's kind of, it really is kind of a mess. 
um, I think there's a lot of people out there who are very frustrated about the way things are. And I think that a lot of them have a very legitimate gripe. I want to I want to go out there and say that um, there's a, there's a lot of very frustrated people for and they're frustrated for very good reasons. And we should definitely address their causes for, of frustration. But what we've ended up doing is we ended up creating these public spaces where they can just vent their frustrations at each other and us. And the people who are ultimately making the laws, enacting the policies, doing the actual work, don't have to care about that because they can just say, oh, well, you know, if you're mad, you can just shoot your mouth off on Twitter. And then I don't give a damn because I blocked you. I'm not looking at this. I don't care about this. This is not real life. Um, so this is so 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 this is where it, it gets really problematic. Where we're angry at each other, we're angry at everything. The uh, social media spaces that we use promote anger over everything, and it's it just a cycle of us yelling at each other because there's really no incentive for us to change. Um, at the same time, though, there there does seem to be some very interesting movement, especially in younger generations. Um, who are really starting to move away from the big platforms. They're trying to do more private social media. They're trying to use social media more as, as just kind of like advertisement for projects that they may want to try. Um, they they want to try and keep things private. What might end up happening, and, and this is just kind of like my wild prediction, is that there's going to be people who are going to try and turn to, they're kind of going to try and create paid social media. And the reason why they would want to do that is because they can keep it operating without having to do the algorithms, without doing the gaming, without pushing the outrage. They can basically just say, we have enough money to fund ourselves. We're good to go. We don't have to have the algorithm. We don't have to sell your data. Just, you know, come on over and you can do all the social interactions without all the rage and with Mm -hmm. fact checks and with proper moderation and the free social media would be kind of relegated to that, you know, cesspool, the way that we talk about yellow journalism um, at the dawn of the 20th century today. Um, And full disclosure, I have done some, some research and work in this space. And that's how I know that there's, there's definitely demand for it. Um, But it's just a question of who's going to be able to do it first. Yeah. And, and again, there's no guarantee that it'll work out. We, isn't it funny, right? Like we, People, it's the social media platforms have given people a voice, which is uh, which is okay. I mean, really, Instagram or whatever has, and TikTok has really TikTok's become quite insightful in some aspects, but Instagram has become, you know, memes and a photo album or a video album, if you will, in today's world. And it's not used the same way as it was even a couple of years ago. And so there, there are some incredible ways to archive your life, the things that you want to share, the slideshow or whatever. But at the same time, really, when you think about it, you know, we, we get so inundated with these messages and we can't get off it because we lose contact with so many people because we're so lazy because we don't want to keep in touch with them properly. But it really, of all the people on your Instagram account, Fish, how many people are your, your Twitter accounts and stuff? How many people truly do you want to keep in touch with personally, really, other than marketing what you get up to? How many people truly? Oh, like, honestly, just just a handful. I mean, 50 or less, probably. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely people who with, with who I interact on Twitter who are like actually my friends in, in real life. Like I actually like we we hang out together. We go to like we're actually friends. 
But again, that's a that's a handful of people. You know, I have thousands of followers. I don't know all of them. I mean, some of them seem like very nice individuals and maybe I would be happy to have a conversation with them. But this is not, you know, I don't have their numbers. We don't we don't text each other (laughs) on a regular basis. And and, and that you're you're actually I think I see where you're going to ask, are you wondering is should we think whether having the followers on social media is necessary or whether it gives us any actual real benefit. Exactly. What's the benefit? I don't think there is one. I think there is literally no benefit anymore. And they've been turned into shopping catalogs anyway. So I, I it's, it's terrible. It, it erodes humanity because we're all too lazy to do the work, to be responsible and aware of how we can be kind. We, we just, you know, if you walked into the, into the mall to do the shopping, as opposed to on the social media app, you probably would hold the door open for the little old lady. Cause you see, she is a little old lady or a little old man and you'd hold the door open for them. The reality is, is that you don't look to see if that's a little old lady or a little old man on Instagram before you call them some expletive. And tell them to go on their way. And I think that's really a sad state of humanity. Uh, Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. You can check out the article. Plus, I will copy the link over to shiftheads.ca so you can quickly reference it there. It's good stuff, Fish. Thanks for bringing it up, buddy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 